Welcome to Indie Matters, the podcast from the Nevada Independent. I'm your host, Joey Lovato. And I'm your co-host, Alex Kuro. Yeah, Alex, and on today's episode, we've got three pieces for you. One on how public land buybacks are happening in Nevada and what that means for the expansion of urban areas like Las Vegas and Reno. After that, we have a piece that you did with our reporter Janelle Calderon on AI being used in the North Las Vegas City Council to help translate. And at the end of the show, we have a piece from Tabitha Mueller about Governor Joe Lombardo's use of his sheriff's uniform during his run for governor. All right. Well, I am here with our DC reporter, Gabby Birenbaum. And Gabby, you have been working on this huge public lands piece. So to start off, I just I'm curious, this is a very interesting situation that's going on with Nevada and public lands. Tell me a little bit about the piece, just kind of the broad overview. Yeah. So basically, I started reporting this piece because I'm not from Nevada. And every time I was trying to report a story on pretty much any topic, this this idea of a lack of land for anything, for housing, for economic development purposes, for mineral extraction, like mining, that there's just a lack of private land that this this kept coming up. And so I was like, oh, I should write some sort of feature explaining how that works. And then several months later, there's a lot to it. (laughs) And I, yeah, I learned a lot about how Nevada is really, much of the West has a large preponderance of, of public lands, lands that are owned by the federal government. But Nevada is about a little over 80% of the lands are public. That's more than any other state in the country. Because of that, when Las Vegas started to take off, particularly in the 80s and 90s, there was just a lack of land for people to expand on, build houses on, build businesses on, whatever it might be. And so out of that problem came this sort of long 25-year history of uh, the Nevada delegation in Congress working to do these sort of land exchanges, standardizing the process, and then going county by county to essentially make more land available, what they call disposal. So selling off to private entities or to local governments who sometimes need that land in order to use it for other purposes. And in exchange, it's left a huge environmental and conservation legacy of conserving millions of acres in the state for environmental purposes. So it's a big part of pretty much any place in Nevada, but especially the Las Vegas Valley, why why it looks the way it looks and how it's changed over the last 25 years. When you say there wasn't enough land, like there physically is enough land, but it wasn't like available to expand the city into. Yeah. So obviously Nevada is a huge state and Las Vegas took off a little later than some other cities in the West, Salt Lake City or Phoenix, for example. And it's pretty tightly encircled by land that's owed by the federal government. So some of that is the Bureau of Land Management, which most people in Nevada, I'm sure, are familiar with because something like two thirds of the land in the state is owned by the BLM, which sort of just means it's federal land that doesn't have any particular extra conservation protection. There's also National Forest Service land. There's U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service land. There's a national park in Nevada. So all of those lands are owned by the federal government. And if you're trying to do a master plan community, like we have a ton of in the Las Vegas Valley, building new housing, businesses, what whatever it may be, a lot of times that involved acquiring public land through lengthy land exchanges with the BLM because the boundary of Las Vegas is so tightly encircled by all that federal land. And so, okay, we keep saying federal land, public land. Let's just define that really quick. What is public land? So this is run by the BLM and it's owned by the federal government. So the state can't really use it for state purposes. Is that right? Yeah. So public land, yeah, essentially is land that's being held in the public trust 
by the federal government for the people. And so a lot of that land does have some sort of public value, right? People recreate on it. They go out and hike, fish. Uh, they have animals that graze on it. They can be ranch lands. There can be mining claims on federal land. There can be renewable energy. But all that requires going through the federal government, getting a permit, doing whatever it is you need to do. And then a lot of that land in Nevada in particular doesn't have that many purposes. Sometimes it's important for habitat conservation. It's important for endangered species, bighorn sheep or whoever might live there. And some of it is just the desert. So Nevada has that high preponderance of, of federal land that essentially dating back to the early history of the state that nobody nobody settled there. How then is Las Vegas expanding? Is it, it's, it's, it's this kind of tit for tat or, or quid pro quo thing going on where they're like getting some land from the federal government, but then they're, the federal government then gets something in return? Or how does that work? Yeah. So basically throughout the 80s and 90s, as Vegas was expanding, there was huge interest among developers, the real estate industry, which is pretty politically influential in Las Vegas, especially for land. There's just this kind of run on land. And so what they would end up doing with the BLM is they would acquire various parcels. And in exchange, they could sell a piece of land to, to the BLM that might have some sort of environmental property that makes it environmentally sensitive. So it would often be exchanging development for conservation. But this got pretty controversial at the time because, because there was such a demand on land. The price of land was skyrocketing so quickly that by the time a piece of land was sold and by the time it actually went into BLM management, the price of the land had already appreciated so much that it was kind of an unfair deal. Or the parcels that were exchanged for conservation might not have been as environmentally sensitive as perhaps they were purported to be. There was a lot of accusations of sweetheart deals, a lot of controversy around it. So in 1997, the Nevada delegation, which at the time this was led by Senator Bryan, mostly Richard Bryan, who was a senator, Democrat in the Senate, Harry Reid, who was, of course, there, Democrat in the Senate, and then John Ensign, who at the time was the House rep. They passed this bill called the Southern Nevada Public Lands Management Act, SNPLMAT is what people call it. And that basically standardized the process. So it drew a boundary around the city of Las Vegas that basically said all the public land within this boundary is available for sale. So the BLM would prepare parcels and they'd put them at auction to go to the highest bidder. That way, the market is essentially setting the rate. And at one point, I think the most expensive parcels went for something like $2 million an acre or something crazy because there was this land was so valuable to developers. And then in exchange, they made a lot of new conservation areas in the state and all the money that was generated from these sales, which in the last 25 years has been $4 billion. The vast majority of that has gone towards conservation purposes, most of it in Clark County, but some of it up in Lake Tahoe towards restoration and water clarity and wildfire. A lot of stuff in Clark County to build out new trails, bike trails, hiking trails, habitat restoration for threatened species, even to things like new bathrooms and like so all of this money, a lot of this money has gone towards conservation purposes, developed a system where it's essentially quid pro quo of allowing public lands to be sold off for private use in exchange for adding new conservation protections and funding conservation projects. And the delegation went on to do several more bills post-SNPLMA that essentially used that same model in Clark County again, in Lincoln County, in White Pine County, and then most recently last year in Churchill County. The federal government is notorious for acronyms, but SNPLMA might be the worst it's very, it's very clunky. And like, I don't think many people outside of Nevada and maybe people in California who care about Lake Tahoe know what it is, but it's generated billions of dollars. So yeah, <laughs> it, it does. It does lead to an interesting conversation, too, which is that is Nevada kind of almost this haven then of conservation compared to other states and that we have this deal going, which is kind of keeps generating more conservation area in the state. 
Yeah, I think it's complicated. It's sort of yes and no. I think a lot of conservationists, it's always been any people who care about conservation, I think are pretty uneasy with the idea of selling off public lands, even though a lot of times they understand the political impulse to do it. But they can point to Nevada and say, look, we've gotten all these new national conservation areas, all these new federal wilderness protections, all these areas in Nevada that have now been protected. And someone gave me the example of Utah, for example, instead of doing it county by county like Nevada has done and doing this quid pro quo model, there's been a bill that's been introduced every Congress for years to protect wilderness in Utah. And even though it can get 200 or so sponsors, it's never passed the House. And that's in Utah, which has no toys for beautiful landscapes. Yeah. Nevada has its beautiful landscapes, but I think it's described to me as a little scrubby in comparison to Utah. So they can point to Nevada and say, look, we've got real results. We have all this conservation. On the other hand, 25 years later, we know a lot more about climate change. It's gotten a lot worse. And some people say protecting areas with wilderness designations that were unlikely to be developed anyway is not worth essentially creating sprawl throughout the Las Vegas Valley and expanding the Las Vegas Valley so much that people have to sit in their cars way more, have more transportation emissions, air pollution, anything like that. And so I think the sort of conservation and environmental communities throughout the state are weighing whether this model is still appropriate moving into the future as there's once again demand for land in Clark County and in Washoe County and really throughout the state. Yeah, it's interesting. Living in Reno, I always see the kind of the people are like, we're running out of space, but there's, no, there's nowhere to build new houses. There's this tension between that conservation mindset and that expansion mindset. I remember reading a couple of years ago that Nevada is the most urban state and that the most people live in urban centers. Very few people live out in, in the rural parts of Nevada. And there is vast, vast swaths of rural Nevada, unlike any other state, right? There, You can go hours and hours without without really going across any major developed areas. And that's not necessarily because of this, right? That that's that's just because of kind of the nature of the state. Yeah, I think that's just the landscape. Those lands I think have always been very sparsely populated. And so yeah, even though we think of Nevada as this super wide rural state and it is, it's one of them I think you're right. Yeah, the most highly urbanized state in the West, especially because people live in Las Vegas or Reno. And that's why there's such a demand for land in those two cities in particular. And so, OK, to wrap up, I'm just kind of curious, what does this mean for Nevadans, for the average Nevadan? Why does this matter? I think if you live in the Las Vegas area, if you live in anywhere from Summerlin outwards, outside of the core, a lot of these any suburbs that have been developed in the last 25 years, a lot of those were made possible through land sales through SNPLMA. And there's multiple bills in Congress right now that would recreate these lands bills that would expand the boundary in Clark County of where they can sell land. And that would create new parcels that would be available in Reno. It matters because it would be opportunity to build new housing. If you care about housing affordability, if you care about conservation, it could be you could see it as an opportunity to add new conservation protections. Or you could say, I don't like the way Las Vegas was built. I don't like how sprawled out it is. I'd rather see if going to sort of change the landscape. I'd rather the city be retrofitted to include transit or whatnot, or sort of have more efficient use of the space that Las Vegas does have or that Reno does have and improve the existing infrastructure there. And so I think it matters to people because these sort of competing demands for housing, for economic development, for conservation are all oftentimes in agreement and intention in these bills. And so I think it's it's worthwhile to sort of look at the history of how they came to be and analyze the current proposals and how to continue to reshape Nevada. And it's really interesting to look at. In my story, there's going to be a map of Google Earth images of the Las Vegas Valley 25 years ago and today. And you can just see how much closer development is out to the mountains, out towards California. So it's really reshaped in Las Vegas particular. 
just the way it looks. Gabby, I'm looking forward to reading your piece. and It will be on our website by the time this podcast airs to so go find it. Hopefully, maybe Congress will find a way to rename Sniplama to something a little bit better. But Gabby, thank you so much for reporting on this. It's a super interesting topic that I think people don't necessarily think about too much unless they're in the conservation areas of policymaking and stuff like that. Thanks, Joey. Thank you so much. Hi, Janelle. Thanks for meeting with me today and for being on the pod this week. How was the weather in Vegas? It's good. Probably not as nice as in Reno, but it's better. It's getting better. We feel a slight cool down. You're not on fire anymore. Yeah, not anymore. Awesome. Today, we're going to be talking a little bit about a story that you have recently put out. Yeah, so last week, the city of North Las Vegas City Council became the first jurisdiction to have this type of AI technology included in their public meetings. This is translating from English to Spanish and Spanish to English. It lets people have more access to our our local government. And this is a program called Wordly that is equipped with 30 languages. But right now, the city is starting with just Spanish. I actually got to speak with Assemblyman Ruben de Silva in the meeting. He was there. I asked him, could we see this in the legislature? Because I remember everybody calling in in Spanish and then Senator Edgar Flores or Assemblywoman Selena Torres having to translate, right? So maybe we will be seeing this more to make our government more accessible. Wortley is a new AI-powered real-time translation service that does not require human interaction. The city of North Las Vegas will first introduce Spanish translation, although Wordly is equipped to interpret more than 30 languages. ¿Qué es Wordly? Wordly es un nuevo servicio de traducción en tiempo real impulsado por inteligencia artificial que no requiere... And how it works... To give you a little snapshot, let's say you walk in into the the meeting and with your phone or a tablet even, you can scan the QR code and it sends you to a link. And if someone's speaking, you can just see the translation going through your phone, like messages, but it doesn't send you notifications. It's just the website. The website looks like messages. Or let's say you don't have a phone or a tablet or maybe because it's near the end of the day, your battery is low. They also have screens at the front of the room, one in English translating the Spanish or even transcribing. This is also an accessibility for people hard of hearing, because if you're able to read what's going on, whether it's in English or in Spanish, I think that helps as well. Or if you're watching from home, you can scan the QR code from the agenda and the same thing. You can read the translation directly from your phone or website. Wow. Yeah. I think brought this up before we started the interview, but it is controversial too. this whole using AI in government. Yeah. So I think AI has become controversial, but it's a tool and technology is a tool that we can use to our benefits. The internet was controversial at one point and it helped us through a pandemic. And now we work from home (laughs) thanks to the internet. So it's just a tool. And now we see your local government, at least in city of North Las Vegas, using it to their advantage. Yeah. And speaking of kind of just of the numbers and making this accessible, how many people are speaking Spanish and how many people could this help? The city of North Las Vegas population is 42 percent Hispanic or Latino as of the last census. 
And a lot of those households do speak Spanish at home. It's not exactly reflective of how many people have limited English proficiency. But if we're able at least reach some people in the city of North Las Vegas to make it more accessible and comfortable to come up to their council members to talk about the issues and what's going on in their lives and living in the city, I think that would be a win. So as far as the future of this goes, do you see it spreading? I think it would be smart. Again, uh, our entire state's 30% Hispanic Latino. We see the AAPI community growing in the entire state as well. There hasn't been any official announcements, but I, I think City of North Las Vegas is like the testing grounds in this and see how it works, if it actually helps engagement. So that is all my question. Did you have anything else you would love to add? I, I hope people do use it and take advantage of it. And again, City of North Las Vegas is, I believe, is one of the most minority majority cities in Nevada, if not the most minority majority cities in Nevada. So hopefully we see more of this. And more voices included in government. Exactly. Yay. All right. Thank you. I am here with reporter Tabitha Mueller, who has been reporting on this story along with our other reporter, Carly Savageo, on this ethics commission thing that's going on with Governor Lombardo. So this isn't a legal, he's not getting like sued or anything, but the ethics commission is fining the governor and censuring him for his use of his uniform during his campaign for governor. Tabs, tell me a little bit more about what's what this is and what's going on. So basically, what we saw during the 2022 election was now Governor, then Sheriff Joe Lombardo using his sheriff's office badge when he was running for office. And there's a lot of decisions that have actually come from the Ethics Commission about sheriffs using their badges, but all of them previously relate to sheriffs using their badges for re-election, which is a big no-no. However, there hasn't been much guidance around sheriffs using their badges when they're running for, say, governor or a different office. And so basically what we saw was that the Ethics Commission received a complaint about now Governor Lombardo using his sheriff's badge and other accoutrements of office. And so they did a review and then proposed to levy an unprecedented $1.6 million fine against the governor. And there's a lot of back and forth on this, but the gist of it is that after kind of a three-hour hearing and a two-hour private deliberation, the board said, okay, you know what, we're not going to issue the full $1.6 million fine, but you probably should have known better, and we're going to issue you a $20,000 fine and censure you. So for those who don't know, what is a censure? A censure is basically a statement of disapproval. And so is this money have to be paid like by Lombardo's campaign or is this like out of his personal money that he has to pay? My understanding of this is that this $20,000 would have to come from Governor Joe Lombardo himself. And this is actually the largest fine ever imposed by the Ethics Commission. So I think that's also pretty noteworthy when we're talking about this. And let's talk about that Ethics Commission a little bit. What is the Ethics Commission? Is this something that they normally look into or do they have to get a complaint to look into something? Who makes up the Ethics Commission? Is this a statewide thing or or a national thing? Tell me a little bit more. The Ethics Commission is an eight-member ethics board with members appointed by the governor and the Legislative Commission. 
basically the commission's kind of charged with interpreting and enforcing Nevada's ethics laws for local and most state employees or elected officials who fall outside of the legislative branch and the judicial branch. They can't just decide on their own, hey, we're going to like investigate. They have to receive a complaint. Like early on in the election cycle, we actually did a story saying, hey, look, Lombardo's using a sheriff's pad. Here are some of the questions that surround that. The Ethics Commission would not be able to do something based off that story. Someone would have to say, this presents a conflict of interest, or I would like to be investigated for these reasons. So they, they got this complaint. And how do they decide if this is unethical or not? They, got, they, they just deliberate. They just all meet in a room and then they decide like, yes, this is unethical. And then how do they decide the amount of money? So it kind of depends. Obviously, it depends on what the violation is. And there are fines that are stipulated within law. And so at least for the the $1.6 million fine, it wasn't just that they threw that out there. They had actually fined for each instance that Lombardo had used to share badge. And, and talking high level, like the discussion, folks were like, this is like if you used one photo six times on my website, then it would be counted six times, even though it was only one photo, right? So like, depends on how you're calculating that. Okay, Tabitha. So to wrap up, the governor is actually fighting this though, right? Like he, he's, he's, he's pushing back. Right. So obviously the Ethics Commission has issued their decision, but we're still waiting for the written formalization of it. And last week, Governor Joe Lombardo's attorneys actually reached out to us and said, hey, we are going to actually fight this. And what their exact words were was after a thorough review of the facts, the law and the recent hearing, Governor Lombardo has instructed our firm to seek judicial review of the Ethics Commission ruling. We look forward to presenting our case in a court of law. So Nothing is completely finalized. We still have some more steps to go. And that's kind of where things stand. All right, cool. Tabitha, thank you so much for reporting on this, as well as our other reporter, Carly Savageau, who couldn't be here right now, but she's done a ton of reporting on this as well. And we will be following this and seeing where it goes. So appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Indie Matters. We want to thank Gabby Bierenbaum, Janelle Calderon, and Tabitha Mueller for being on the show today. This show was produced and edited by me and Alex Kuro, with additional help from Michelle Rendells. If you want to support the show, leave us a rating and review wherever you listen. You can also email us at podcast at the Our theme song is from Emily Pratt, and we have additional music from Storyblocks, June Pearson, and Joey. Thank you for listening to Indie Matters. I'm your host, Joey Lovato. And I'm your co-host, Alex Kuro. And we'll talk to you next week. 